the gospel according to Luke. I'm saying that for a long time. Turn there with me. Bible's in the back, reading from the ESV. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, take it home with you. That's our gift to you. If you have taken 12 or 15 of them home, bring a few back. That would be good. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 7. We're continuing our series called Mission to the World. Uh, we're calling it Mission to the World because of the gospel according to Luke's perspective or Dr. Luke's perspective of the work of salvation. Luke, under the inspiration, the superintendent of the Holy Spirit, shows us, in particular, God's love and God's compassion and grace extending to all nations, all tongues, all tribes, to the marginalized, to the scandalous people of this day. We see over and over to the tax collectors and to the sinners. We'll see that especially next week. Remember, as we get into Luke, um, we are in chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Remember... Uh, by this time, Jesus has called and named his unique apostles, and many disciples are following him, going from town to town, village to village. There's also large crowds that have, have come uh, to, to observe and to witness all that Jesus was doing. It's important uh, today to remember that when Jesus was baptized, after Jesus was baptized, and after he was uh, sent into the wilderness by the Spirit, he was tempted by the enemy, he went home, he went to Nazareth, and he walked into the, uh, uh, the synagogue, a place of worship, which he regularly did on a Saturday, on the Sabbath. And when he went into this worship service, they handed him a scroll. It was a scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah, Isaiah. Jesus opened the scroll, and he, and he opened up to chapter 61. And he read this from Isaiah from hundreds of years before. Prophesied by Isaiah, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. This is what he said. He opened up the scroll and he read Isaiah and it said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his grace. And then... Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. Everybody was watching him, and he sat down. And he said, today, this day, right now, as I speak, this scripture, written by Isaiah, hundreds of years, is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm here. And that's what Jesus has been doing, town to town, preaching the gospel to the poor, healing the sick, raising the dead, delivering folks from illnesses and, and spiritual oppression. Jesus, the promised king, has come, and, he, and he's demonstrating his kingly authority and power to the world. But rather than take his rightful place on a throne, given a, a golden crown, he, he will be given a crown of thorns. He will be not on a, a throne, but he will be crucified on a cross. Let's keep that in mind as we continue walking with Jesus in the region of Galilee, and today we are introduced or reintroduced to a man named John the Baptist. He was a prophet. He was a prophet God said in the Old Testament was going to come to prepare the way for the Lord. Three real clear movements uh, this morning as we look at chapter 7, um, verses 18 to 35. The first one is Jesus' inquiry or inquiry of John. John's inquiry, excuse me, of Jesus. Verses 18 through 23. John has questions. Then we'll see Jesus' evaluation of John the Baptist in verses 24 through 28. And then finally, Jesus brings judgment upon the generations. 
announces judgment. So that's the three movements, John's inquiry of Jesus, Jesus' evaluation of John, and then Jesus' judgment of the generation. So the first thing we'll see in verses, excuse me, 18 through 23, is John's inquiry of Jesus, inquiry of Jesus. Now, remember, put this in perspective. The Lord Jesus has been teaching his disciples, we remember in chapter 6, what it means to follow him. And when he was done, he went back to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum, it depends on how you say it. I've heard it said in different ways, but Capernaum. As he was there, he was approached by religious leaders, and he was asked by these religious leaders to heal a centurion soldier, a Roman soldier who had a servant who was sick, so to heal the servant who was sick. Remember, the centurion soldier was a friend of Israel. He had, he had financed, he, was, he loved the nation, he financed their synagogue, and the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, look, he is worthy, he has earned his way to have you heal his sick servant. But on his way, as Jesus was headed to his house, uh, the centurion surgeon sent, uh, uh, soldier sent more messengers and the messengers basically came to Jesus and said, the, the centurion said, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. I haven't earned this. But, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus, we, it says in scripture, marveled and was amazed by the humility and faith of this centurion soldier. And when they returned to the house, the one who was dying was completely healed. Jesus didn't have to go there. Jesus didn't have to touch him. Jesus just said a word from a distance and completely healed his dying servant. Last week, if you remember, his disciples are, are, are leaving Capernaum. They are headed to Cain. It's about a, a day's journey. There's his disciples, his apostle, a large crowd. And they show up at a little town, a little village called Nain. And in the providential timing of God, there's a funeral going on. If you remember, a widow's son, only son, had died. And it was carried out by the village people there. And the whole town was there. And there was an open casket called a beer. The widow's only hope for provision, for care, for protection uh, came to an end. And Jesus, in, in God's providence, sees his funeral, hears the magical, uh, excuse me, the musical dirge and singing and the wailing going on, reaches into the casket, <laughs> just says, awaken, arise, and the dead young boy comes to life. If you look with me in chapter 7, verse 16, the town goes wild. It says, fear seized them all. They glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And look what it says. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Jesus raised a boy who was dead back to life. We see worship of God and we see the witness of God's people declaring what God has done. Obviously, these miracles, especially the raising of this boy, the powerful display of kingly authority had reached John the Baptist. We're told in chapter 3 that John, at this point in his ministry, is in prison. So evidently, from time to time, his, his disciples who were among the region would go back and tell John what was going on in Israel at the time, especially Jesus' teaching and miracles. The witnessing of Jesus was going out to these disciples. They were going back to tell John. We also know that John's message of sin and repentance and judgment reached the ears of the king of Herod. He's actually a tetrarch who divorced his wife, 
married his brother's wife, committed adultery, broke up two marriages. He was a wicked man. And John was preaching the gospel, calling him out because of his sin. So Herod had him thrown in prison. Luke chapter 9, he'll be murdered. His head will be cut off. And there is John locked in a dungeon in Herod's palace. The place is called Machiros. It's about 15 miles from the Jordan River, right next to the Dead Sea. Two disciples are dispatched to the jail with a message. They come to Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for someone else? Should we look for someone else? Are you the one that's been prophesied? Are you the one that's been promised? Now, there's all kinds of speculation of why John would ask these questions. Why would John send these disciples to Jesus when we know earlier from Scripture that in John's ministry, he had plenty of contact with Jesus, right? So John, we know, was sent to the people to repent. We saw that already. One of judgment, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and his message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that started his ministry. It was, it was one of judgment, it was one of wrath. Actually, he goes on to say in Luke, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. Judgment's coming, wrath is coming, God is going to judge sin. We know his ministry paved the way for Jesus. We know also that at some point, John saw Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So why would he ask these questions? He came to preach repentance, paved the way, and Jesus, he sees him and says, Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. We also know that John baptized Jesus in the wilderness. He was there when, when Jesus came up out of the water, and the scripture says the heavens were torn open, a dove uh, 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 descended on him like, uh, uh, excuse me, God descended on him with bodily like a dove. He heard a voice from heaven say, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So he comes up out of the water, a dove looks like a dove or a flutters like a dove, and a voice from heaven comes. The text doesn't tell us exactly why. But I think it's fair to say that if, 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 if we were locked in a dungeon, waiting to die, not in a, a real nice place with a swimming pool, we're talking a dungeon 2,000 years ago, you'd be a little bit stressed out. A little bit. Would you agree? Yes. Second, th this, this bug-eating, camel-wearing John the Baptist yelling at people everywhere to repent for the kingdom of God is coming. Repent, judgment, the axe will be laid. Has to be wondering, where is it? Right? Where's this judgment that God's going to bring? I hope it comes before they cut my head off next week. That's what my hope. That would be my hope. I think John's hesitation, his doubts come not from waning faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but more so out of a, of, of a discouragement, not seeing judgment come. I've been preaching this. I've been screaming it in the wilderness. I hope it comes. It, it's very possible that John the Baptist, as many of the Old Testament prophets, saw the, the coming of Jesus and the judgment that the scriptures speak about, but didn't really understand of the first advent and the second advent, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. He's coming back. He's coming back. 
I mean, again, he didn't come the first time to take his rightful place on the throne, right? Get a victor's crown, but go to the cross. But that's the first advent, right? He came to be a substitute, a sacrifice for sinners. But he will come again to destroy and defeat his enemies and to establish his kingdom. So I think John's in prison, somewhat confused, has some doubts, has some uncertainty about the expectations of this Messiah, not very hard. I don't think it's very difficult uh, to imagine why John might be a little bit confused and have some doubts. He had understood the coming of the Messiah as a time of justice and punishment, and he's wondering, I hope it comes soon. But notice what the Baptist does. He doesn't just simply sit in his cell, getting angry, more confused, having more doubts, tries to seek answers from those around him, he says, go ask Jesus. He takes his doubts to the source himself. Honest doubts show itself in in seeking truth. Going to the scriptures, you have concerns, you're not sure who is this real Jesus, open up to the gospel according to John or Luke and read about Run to the source. Look to Jesus. Look to the scripture. Honest doubts show itself by seeking truth. Dishonest doubts look all over the place to find the answer they're looking for to disprove what they really don't want to know anyway. Which one are you this morning? Are you an honest doubter? Are you going to run to the source? Look to Jesus? Pray to Jesus? Read the word of Jesus? Or are you just like, you know what? I'm going to look for any excuse. So I don't have to believe. But said so John is sitting there, but he's confused. There's, there's some doubts. There's no questions. Imagine sitting there and, and not only waiting for the judgment to come, but you're like, Rome is still in charge. <laughs> Herod and Herodias are living in comfort and ease. Religious establishment is still arrogant and, and self-righteous. And you're, you're in prison hearing all of the love and the grace of Jesus, healing people, loving people, raising people from the dead. And you're thinking, man, I want wrath and judgment. Forget all that kind of stuff. And you want, are you the one to come or should we expect somebody else? I'd like to tear some things up around here. Bring fire, bring wrath. And then Jesus, while entertaining that question, verse 21, begins to heal, in that hour, diseases and plagues and delivering men and women from evil spirits, causing the blind to see. And then he turns to these two disciples. He doesn't answer the question directly, but tells them, go and report what you see. Go go tell John what you've just seen and go tell John what you have heard. And again, I think that points back to Nain, that he just raised that boy from the dead, because he raised, it says it in the scripture, he was raised from the dead. It, that's, that's what the Messiah has come to do. And then what, what you may not know this, and I, I want to point this out to you, he also at that point points to scripture. So when you look in, your, in the text, when it says, in that hour, verse 21, he healed many people of disease and plagues and evil spirits, And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, right? Pointing back to that. And the poor have good news preached to them. Not only is that a reality, but Jesus is pointing to Scripture. Why? John the Baptist knows his Bible. That's why. 
John the Baptist knows his Bible, Isaiah 29. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Then the eyes, chapter 35 of Isaiah, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of them of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So, so Jesus uh, sends John's messenger back with this overwhelming empirical and, and scriptural evidence of this massive and divine authority and massive messianic power that Jesus has. Pointing to scripture. John, you know your Bible. This is what's going on. Isaiah, in, we just studied the book of Isaiah a year ago or so. I mean, Isaiah is speaking about that millennial reign of Christ, but he, we already know that the kingdom has come in, inaugurated with Jesus Christ and will come again in his fullness. And Jesus comes in and he brings the kingdom and he shows this is what the kingdom, you get a glimpse, the already of the kingdom. We talk about this all the time. And the not yet, the not yet of the fulfillment of the kingdom. And Jesus tells him, tell John what you see, tell John what you heard. Raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. And look at what Jesus says in verse 22, see, last part of 22. The poor have what? Good news preached to them. What is that? That's Isaiah 61. I, I fulfilled that ministry, he said, in Nazareth. So I, I, as I was studying, I, I, just looking for application in, as we look at the text and the, and, the, and the context, are there times in our life that we may not question, be confused that God exists, or even that he forgives us of our sins, but, but are there times in our life that due to pain, a painful circumstances, maybe a very dark and hard situation, we find ourselves confused or questioning and doubting the timing of God, the purposes of God, maybe the providence of God, that's the God's moving in history, in his sovereignty. Like, why now? Why, why, why this? Why, why are you waiting? I think that's John. And I think sometimes in our pain and our hurts and our distress, those things take the forefront in our lives so that we no longer can see what God is doing in our life. We can no longer see what God is doing in our world around us and the work that he's doing. And what does Jesus do in John's doubts and confusion? Look what he does. He points him back to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. He doesn't tell John, hang in there, man. I'll come and get you. Hang in there, man. I, I'm going to change your circumstances. Hold on. He doesn't tell him that. He doesn't say, look, John, your will be done, not mine. That's not what he says. Because the greatest need that John has, the greatest need that you and I have when we're waiting, even in difficult and hard times, he's getting his head cut off soon, is to know that Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, Messiah, king of the world and and that's the crucial question for anyone to answer is jesus the christ is he the savior to whom god had promised he would send is he the only true hope of salvation for the world the answer is yes the way to know for sure whether jesus christ is go back to him to what he's doing to his person to his work on the cross when god fails to meet our hopes and our expectations and we are stunned by the personal difficulties and, and hounded with doubts and confusions and we have uncertainties. We need to go back to Jesus. 
We need to go back and look at him through the lens of Scripture to see his greatness, his glory, his beauty, his work of the cross, his love, his mercy in the gospel. Jesus will come to judge the world, but he first came to save it. Luke is reporting this miracle after miracle, and, and, and Jesus performing these kingly authority, powerful raising from the dead and things like that, not, not as a circus act, but for the purpose of understanding who Jesus is, his authority, his power, his deity. So the obvious conclusion when Jesus raises someone from the dead is that he is the giver of life. And his healing and his ministry is to show the identity that he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is God himself in the flesh. And then he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I, I, the word blessed, first of all, is in the singular. So I think first and foremost it's pointing to John. It's not so much hanging there, I'm going to come and get you. It's keep the faith. Keep the faith, right? Don't be, don't be offended no matter what happens to you, no matter what your persecution you're in. Don't be offended by the gospel. Don't be offended by the gospel. I think that's what he's saying. And we see that today, don't we? There'll be people who not only reject the gospel, but they'll, they'll stumble over the rock of our salvation, right? I mean, I... Jesus, excuse me, God had promised even back in Isaiah's day that Jesus was going to come. He was going to be a rock, uh, excuse me, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling. There'll be those who fall and trip and don't want to hear it. And especially, and we see that more and more in our pluralistic culture, especially offended with the very idea that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. The exclusivity of Christ is a major stumbling block for many people. But Jesus said, blessed are you if the reality of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the work of the gospel does not cause you to stumble. That you rest solely upon the work of Jesus as the only Savior of the world. Like I said, not just to John, but to every individual in this room. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who are not offended by me. John's inquiry of Jesus. Jesus makes this move. I think, like I said, he's speaking to John. He's speaking to all of us. And then in verses 24 through 28, he turns to the crowd and he asks them a question concerning John. Now, you know, as you walk through narratives, you try to put yourself in, in, in that place the best you can. I can only imagine, I mean, John wasn't there, but Jesus is going to say some things about John. It's because Jesus loves John. Jesus had compassion on all people. And he wants John to be honored. He wants John, even though John is having doubts, everyone just heard that, he's, he's confused, he's questioning, and Jesus sends back the messengers to give him the mess. I still think that when Jesus turns to the crowd and speaks of the evaluation of John, I, I, it's out of love. And compassion. I say that because we know the character of Jesus according to Scripture. And he says, What did you all go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing, live in luxury, are in king's courts. Remember, John the Baptist was, was raised by Zechariah, his father, and his mother Elizabeth. They had no children. They were older in age. Remember, he was, he was acting as a priest in the temple when, when the angel came to him. And God intervened. God had mercy on this couple. When you don't have children, you're in your 80s, 90s, whatever she was, and you have no children, that's a big deal in Israel. But God intervened, and Elizabeth got pregnant. And if you remember, Zechariah didn't believe it, didn't believe God's word. It was mute and deaf until the baby was born. And then when the baby was born, uh, the father, Zechariah, gave the boy his name, which God commanded him to do. His name would be John. And the family was told that he would be a prophet. He would preach repentance in preparation of the coming of the Messiah and that his ministry would be in the wilderness, Luke chapter 3, verse 4. Actually, another quote from Isaiah 40. A voice, John would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We saw that. And just like the prophet Elijah, he's not Elijah, but like the prophet, he was called to preach to the nation. He was calling people everywhere, not only to repent, but to be reconciled to a holy God. That they were sinners, they need to recognize their sin. John, we are told, lived in uh, much of his life in obscurity in, in a Judean desert before the word of God came to him and he began his prophetic ministry somewhere around 30 years old. The Bible tells us that he was not allowed to drink alcohol. All right, if you're wondering why John was not allowed to drink alcohol, it's very theological. John is a complete freak and if he had something to drink, things would really go bad. I mean, think about it. He's hanging out in the desert all his life. Like he smells, I'm sure, really bad. He's eating bugs and honey. That's what the Bible tells us. He's wearing clothes of camel's hair, a big leather belt. You can't help but get this picture of this big, big, burly, knotted hair, wild dude, smelly, bug-eating dude, yelling at people. Repent! Like you can't raise a stable kid on bugs and honey. Like it just doesn't work. He's constantly on this sugar buzz, and, and he's running around preaching barefoot camel hair toga. And the Bible, when the Bible says that he cried out, it literally means shouting with deep emotion at the top of his lungs. Okay? Repent! That's the man of God. That's the, God, that's the man God raised him up, right? Don't need a pulpit. He probably needs a rubber room. But he, he is preaching strongly he is proclaiming repent bring forth the fruit of your repentance he's preaching judgment and wrath okay he's anything but a reed shaken by the wind i'll tell you that a wimp that's what he's saying blown around with the latest public opinion oh you better not say that oh, don't you dare say that don't oh you're gonna offend somebody there a weak and a wavering character was not John the Baptist. A soft and privileged and self-indulgent individual, I think not. Right? People don't go out into the middle of the wilderness to see an uncertain, wavering prophet who's begging people to listen to him. That's not John the Baptist. He was more, as, as a lot of commentators say, a, a mighty oak tree standing firm against the stormy gales of opposition, not blowing around with the wind. Right? He's not the kind of guy standing around with fancy clothes, right? eating rich food, camel skin, diet of bugs, wild honey, in the desert, yelling at people. The phrase splendid or soft clothes in 25B means soft material, luxury 
texture. Figuratively, it's, it's used in 1 Corinthians 6 being effeminate, okay? He wasn't wearing silk pajamas, feety pajamas, right? Huggies proclaiming judgment and repentance. Not a candidate at all for Bud Light commercials. I, I'm sorry, he's not that guy. I couldn't help myself, I'm sorry. So, so, so why then did the crowds go out to see him? Look at verse, 30, verse 26. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, he has this high evaluation of who John the Baptist is. Not only call him a prophet, man, he's ranking, he's ranking him higher than Elijah, all the prophets of old. Greatest of mortal men, verse 27. This is he of whom it is written. And, and, and I got to tell you, he's quoting Malachi right now, chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I'll tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. If you look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, next quote, God speaking about God coming, and that is clear, clear description of the deity of Christ. I will send my messenger before me, God says in Malachi, and here comes Jesus, okay? What made John so great, though? It wasn't so much of who he was, I don't think so. It was because of God, what God made him to be. And what God called him to be. And the fulfillment of God in John's life. John had a unique and, and very special calling in ministry. Like no other person on planet earth. Calling people to repentance. Laying down the way for salvation. Because Jesus was coming. The Messiah was coming. John's the man that has been promised. That when the Messiah comes. John will pave the way. This made John the last and the greatest prophet before Christ, really under the Old Testament dispensation. Although the other prophets looked for a savior from afar, which shadows analogy, at least John got to see him with his own two eyes. He's the forerunner of Christ. He'll be in the kingdom, verse 28, but John will not get to see all of the work of the gospel of Jesus. He will not get to see, he will not get to understand um, because he sees it through shadows and analogies, even though he saw him firsthand, he still doesn't understand completely the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He got his head cut off before it happened. Like Moses, God called Moses to lead his people out of the Egyptian slavery and bondage, to go to the land of flowing with milk and honey, but then he didn't get to go in. And John's call to lead but he don't get to see the cross, all right? He don't get to see the cross. He gets to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He gets some of that. So John's greatness comes because God raised him up to get people, to get God's people ready for God's salvation. The man who's locked up and in prison, confused and doubting uh, the purpose and plans of God was, according to Jesus, look what he said, the greatest prophet alive. The crowd needed to know that. I think Jesus is honoring John. And all that God has done in and through the ministry of Jesus. What a testimony. What a testimony. But look at verse 28b. Yet, Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, if you're reading that going, that's confusing. Welcome to my world. <laughs> okay. Greatest man alive. Yet least, okay? Well, what he's saying is, 
John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived because of his witness to Christ and his place in redemptive history. But yet, the, 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 the least and the weakest Christian is greater than John, greater in the sense of blessedness because of what we, John, has not experienced, but we have in the finished work of Christ. And since Jesus is coming, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we know the mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of the cross. We know the power of Jesus in rising us from the dead. We know the love of Jesus in the gift of eternal life. This was something John could only dream of because it was what? Only analogies and foreshadows pointing from the old covenant pointing to the new covenant. The new covenant fulfillment comes in Jesus and is connected to certain provisions of that covenant that John did not have, like the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Peter and in Matthew 13 that the prophets of old, they, they, they longed to see such a day of the work of Jesus. There's no one of the old era is as great as John. Everyone in the new era is greater than he. That's the point. Making, he's saying, he's not only evaluating, explaining the greatness, but what Jesus is showing too here is that ultimate greatness is the coming of the new covenants. In other words, it is more significant to be the least member in the, excuse me, it is more significant to be the least member in, in, the, in the new era, in the new covenant, than to have be the greatness in the old covenant as an old prophet. Okay? It's not saying that John's not a, a saved in heaven today. We're not saying that. He believed in the Messiah. But John only saw the beginning of what Jesus would do. We get the whole gospel. We get John and, and Peter and looking into the, into the tomb. It's empty. He's risen from the dead. We, we get that whole ascent. We get, we get so much more in the coming of Jesus, our King. What a difference between the old and the new. That's what Jesus is saying. How great it is, family. Think about that, that we share in this new covenantal promise that we have all given to us in a complete word of God. I mean, some people, I don't know if you, you know, you read these stories, especially with kids' stories, what it would have been like to be Moses, to you know, just split the sea or, or, or to, to get the tablets or, or all the other cool things that happened in the Old Testament. If you ask those Old Testament prophets, which they would want, they would say, no, I want to see Jesus. I want to see the empty tomb, right? I long for those days. We'd gladly trade places with you. This is how wonderful and unique and special it is the gospel, in the gospel. We get the presence of Jesus. We get the Holy Spirit. We get the scriptures that teach all us about the new truth of the gospels. So, Jesus says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Turns to the crowd and said, yet, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And, he, and, and, he, and in some ways, he's just simply saying, the king is here. The new covenant has come. Right? Everything under the Old Testament has been through uh, prophetic words, visions, historical shadows, but the work of Christ has come, right? So think of it this way. The, 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 all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, under the sacrifice system, they're all pointed to who? Jesus. He's the better and final sacrifice. He's the fulfillment of the priesthood. Why? He's the high priest who gave his life to bring us to God. He's the fulfillment of all the feasts and festivals and all that they re represent, right? He's the true and better Passover, Right? He's the better true and Passover lamb who, who shed his blood, gave his life. And if we take cover underneath the shed blood of Jesus, we're spared from the judgment of God. He's the greater and better unleavened bread. 
He nourishes our soul. He's the better and true prophet, priest, and king. He, he points, Jesus points all the goodness and mercy and the greatness of this new covenant promise. It's really, God is honoring, Jesus is honoring John. He, he's teaching about this new kingdom. He's teaching about how, how, how great and awesome it is that the king has come in this new covenant reality. But I'll tell you something else I think is going on in this text. He's saying, how he's answering the question, are you the one? Are, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In other words, it's about mission. It's for you this morning, it's for me this morning to recognize there's one way into the kingdom. There's one way to come into the new covenant and that is only through the work of Jesus. He is the great king. And we as people, and maybe you're here this morning, you haven't trusted Christ, hear the call of the king and his kingdom. John the Baptist was a forerunner declaring a baptism of repentance. Jesus comes and says, repent and believe on me. John's great. The new era and the new kingdom has come. The covenant promise of the new covenant is greater. Do you know the king? Have you entered into that kingdom? That's the question. Are he, is he the one? He is the one. And finally, we look at verses 29 and 30, just see these two different responses. Right? One response to all that's going on is a faith response. Those wicked and sinners, tax collectors, respond with faith, and yet there are those who reject. Look what the text tells us. The Pharisees and lawyers and the scribes reject. And we've been, we've been noticing over there, it's going to get worse as we get past chapter 9. Over the past you know, several weeks and pages of scripture, that these religious leaders have become more and more hostile to Jesus. Even though Jesus' uh, um, popularity is growing, hostility against him is growing. But we see that here today, right? Don't we see that here today? Either we accept Christ, trust in his finished work, or we reject him and we stand in judgment and condemnation. And look, look, let's look at their two responses for a few moments here. It says here in the text that. Their faith, in their faith, it says they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. What does that mean? That means that those who submitted to John's call to acknowledge and repent of sin were willingly baptized as an outward sign of their profession. They accepted God's righteous judgment upon them for their sin, and they're submitted to the work of God through John, through Jesus, and God's plan of redemption. That's what that means. One commentator wrote this. They acknowledged that before God they were guilty and worthy of condemnation, and that he, God, was fully justified in demanding from them confession of sin, true repentance, not in word only, but outwardly and publicly by undergoing the baptism of John, end quote. In other words, they, they were responding favorably to God in faith, trusting him and, and believing in the offer that God has for forgiveness as they recognize their sin and they repent and turn in faith. That's what that means. But there are those, look what the text says, verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God. There are those who will acknowledge their sin and submit to the plan of God, and there are those who refuse to repent of sin and not be baptized as a profession of our faith and the preparation of the coming Messiah. And look what it says. They rejected the purposes of God. 
Do you realize that both John the Baptist and Jesus both came in the beginning of their ministry with the message of repentance? That repentance is a necessary component to our salvation. The time is at hand, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Metanoia, to change, to turn. Luke will end with the Great Commission. Jesus commands the, that, the, uh, the church that repentance will be preached for the forgiveness of sins. It should be proclaimed to all the nations. John and Jesus preach repentance. No, it's not a work. It's not like you can earn your salvation by repentance. It's acknowledgement that you need forgiveness. Okay, see that? It's an acknowledgement that I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. John Calvin wrote, Surely no one can embrace the grace of the gospel without betaking himself from the errors of his past life into the right way, understanding that they're sinners, and applying his whole efforts to the practice of repentance. Can true repentance stand apart from faith? Not at all. But even though they cannot be separated, they ought, not to, be, they ought to be distinguished. In other words, there's a turning from sin and a trust in Christ. That's how we come to faith. But you know what? And maybe you're here this morning. These religious leaders will not acknowledge their sin. That's the problem. They refuse to acknowledge. They want to live by the law, and they follow the law meticulously, not perfectly. I don't think they would say perfectly, but sufficiently. And sometimes we live like that. Like, I, I know I'm not perfect. I know that I'm a sinner, but I'm just not that bad. Especially that guy. Especially that girl. And that's the way they were living. So they refused to hear the call of John to repent. And with great wisdom, Jesus addresses them with what's called, I love this, the parable of the brats. Verse 31. We'll just look at this briefly. The parable of the brats. To what then shall I compare this generation to the religious leaders who refuse? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't weep. In those days, the kids in Israel, the boys and girls would get together, and they would play games. They would play weddings and funerals. A little odd to me. I played G.I. Joe when I was a kid, you know, a little stick ball. They played, let's get married. I guess there was some dress up when we were kids. I wasn't marrying anybody at six years old, but... You know, and, and funerals, and they would play these games. And some kids didn't play nicely. There's a shock. When they piped cheerfully, their playmates said, no, I'm not dancing. When they wailed for their friends and acting like it's a funeral. Can you imagine playing that game, acting like a funeral? But anyway, uh, they wouldn't cooperate. And Jesus saying to those who reject him and John are like spoiled brats. They're, they're children that are squabbling and refusing to participate in the games that they're playing. The current generation, Jesus is saying, is sitting on the sidelines, criticizing and not wanting to play by the rules. Verse 33, John the Baptist come eating and drinking. Excuse me, came, has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, right? Yet he has a demon. That's something to say about John. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> Jesus is saying, look, the religious leaders reject the ministry of John, reject the ministry of Jesus, are a bunch of brats sitting on a sidewalk and doing things their own way by their own rules. They don't want to listen to anyone. 
They don't want to come by God's way. They don't want to come by God's plan. They have their own demands. They have their own expectation. Jesus, excuse me, John lived an ascetic life. Says he didn't drink, he didn't eat no bread and drank no wine. Yet, he's crazy. I mean, the guy won't join any parties, man. He can't get him out of the woods. All he wants to eat is locusts and honey. Guy's got a problem. And then Jesus comes going to parties. He's like, hey, you want to come to a party? Yeah, I'll go. And they say, you know what? He's drunk. Never satisfied. Jesus says, come and enjoy the wedding of, of the feast of the Messiah. Uh, forgiveness is offered, joy of the kingdom. No, thank you. John says, listen, man, wrath is coming. Your judgment is coming. You better repent or there's death. Yeah, no, thank you. Sitting, sulking on the sidelines. Family criticism, unfortunately, let's be honest, comes way too easy. Criticism to some of us here, possibly, is just a way to say, you know what? I don't want to repent. I don't want to acknowledge my sin. I don't want to have a relationship with God. I want to live my life, be critical of everybody around me. Always finding fault. Finding fault with the scripture, finding fault with his church, finding fault with this one, finding fault with that one. Always making excuses and criticizing everything around you. And what that's doing is keeping us from having honest doubts. Seeking the face of God. Turning to him in scripture, reading the word, going to the Savior. Show me, reveal to me truth. Verse 35 to close. Yet wisdom, Jesus said, is justified by all her children. In other words, wisdom, God's way is proven right, is justified by the approval of her children. Those that have been baptized by John, that now are turning their faith to Jesus, and all that they're doing is showing forth that their wisdom, that that wisdom is justified, is right. They, they're not offended by him. They see his deeds, they see the signs pointing to the already of the kingdom, that the king has come and prove the wisdom of John and Jesus preaching in their faith and their trust in who God is. Wisdom children, followers of John and now Jesus, accept God's will. And what we see here are those that, again, this is the gospel according to Luke, the marginalized and the tax collectors and sinners is who Jesus is pointing to. They have wisdom. They see the sign. They see the time. They see the need to repent. And then they see the Messiah, the one who will die for their sins, rise from the dead, and the only one who can forgive them of their sins. That's what Jesus is saying. So how do we be wise? I'm going to call the band up, and we're going to wrap this up right now. Are you discouraged this morning? Are you discouraged? Are you doubting? Are you confused by your present circumstances? And then the call here in this text is to look to Jesus. It's just to look to him, to open your word, to get in his word, to look to Jesus. Look to his love, look to his mercy, look to his greatness, look to his power, look to his beauty. Look to Jesus if you're discouraged or confused. Do you need a word of encouragement this morning? Do you need to hear the Savior say, blessed are you who reap the benefits of the new covenant, that you can have the dwelling presence of the Spirit. Know that your sins have been forgiven. Know the cross and the empty tomb. May that be an encouragement to you. Do, you. do you need to know that you are blessed if you are not offended by the gospel this morning? Or do you need this morning to stop the overcritical attitude and just be honest and turn to Jesus, see again his work, 
His beauty, glory, and place your faith in Him. That's the message that this text tells us. And what we're going to do is we're going to respond. We're going to respond in singing, and we're going to respond with a song, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you with compassion, love, and power. Let us stand together as I pray for us. Father, we pray that you would help us, God, God, to respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. That, God, we would rest in your written word. That we would see the beauty of the cross and the empty tomb and recognize that, yes, we are sinners and we are in desperate need of salvation. Yes, we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but you alone can make us alive in Christ by returning from our sins and placing our whole heart solely upon Jesus who died and rose again, who paid the penalty for our sins, took the judgment we deserve, and offers forgiveness for all those who call upon him. So God, we call upon you and help us, Lord, as we respond to singing, not words on a screen, but to you. May our hearts soar with faith today as we respond. In Jesus' good name, amen.